This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Greg Taylor, thanks very much for making your talk, your book uh, debut. Really excited to sit down and have a chat with you. Before we get into your stock pick, I thought it'd be a good chance to just uh, introduce Bombora Group to us and um, what your guys' philosophy is, because it's a little bit unique compared to some of the other funds that, um, that I get to sit down with. Yeah, no, thanks, Chris, and appreciate the opportunity. Uh, a little bit, little bit about Bombora. Uh, Bombora Investment Management's been around for eight years now, uh, and we launched the Bombora Special Investments Growth Fund about three years ago. Uh, and you know, it's quite unique in our strategy in that it's a hybrid between a pre-IPO fund and a listed equity fund, and we focus on sort of emerging growth companies, so call them small cap Aussie equities. Uh, but we're quite different in our approach in that, um, one, we take quite an active role in our investments. So what that means is typically we look to be a lead investor, you know, 10 to 20% uh, representation on the register. So it's a high conviction position. But through that, we typically join the board quite often in the chairperson role uh, and, you know, work with the management teams to sort of build out the, the executive, the C-suite, the, you know, the board and governance structures and helping them on their on their growth journey. So take a very active role uh, in the investments and that starts typically as a private company. And we help those companies sort of navigate the growth and capital journey to become a listed company. Uh, and then you know, another key point of difference is we stay with them as a listed company. So typically look for one to two years as a private company investment, take them through an ASX listing and then stay with them for the first three years as a listed company to help them sort of get to their growth aspirations. And do you usually look to exit your positions with a, a full takeover of that group or do you sell down on market or look for a, a um, you know, a, a full sale of your stock through, a, not a trailer sale, but a, an off-market sale to another group? How do those exits generally occur? Yeah, a little bit of all of the above. So there's a lot of um, private equity DNA in the Bombora group. So my background's been in listed equity world for 25 years, but um, key, one of the key partners and um, co-chief investment officer, Mike Hills, come from 25-year sort of background in private equity. So we go into every investment with a pretty clear view about what our exit options are. Um, so firstly, we don't view the IPO or the ASX listing as an exit. That's, just, that's the major round of capital. We get the business ready for institutional money and um, ready to take on a, a large amount of capital. So, and you know, there's never been an example where we exited an IPA, we, we add to our position through there. But then, then we take about a three year horizon post listing as our holding period. And you know, we're developing all modes of exit strategies. Firstly, just getting to the growth aspirations of the business. Uh, and then being a public listed company, we might exit gradually over time after three to five years. Um, but we're also, again, always exploring you know, potential trade exits and, and you know, M&A opportunities for the business to, to help exit through, through time. The classic examples, the first business we um, invested in at Bombor eight years ago was a business called Ripe. We invested as a private company. It was a $20 million company. Uh, you know, shortly after we listed it, we you know, sat in the executive chairman role for the first three years. 
that's grown to a 500 million, four to 500 million dollar company that's held by most the institutional small cap managers in the country. Uh, you know, highly profitable, dividend paying. Uh, when we just gradually exited that position, you know, over that three to five year period, and um, you know, people didn't really see us go, and uh, that business continues to go from strength to strength. Beauty, and what stock did you want to talk us through today? Yeah, today, uh, really keen to talk about Bike Exchange. It's a company we've recently taken through that ASX listing journey um, and you know, got some genuine conviction around the growth opportunity ahead over, the, again, that next three to five years for the business. And uh, it's still relatively new to the market, only listed on the ASX in February. And um, our sense is that probably the market doesn't truly appreciate the, the opportunities. I thought this would be a great forum to, to talk through our views. And so talk uh, to the viewers that haven't heard of Bike Exchange before. What do they do and, and what does their business model look like? Yeah, uh, so Bike Exchange is, is quite simply, it's a global online marketplace for all things cycling. So uh, so from road bikes to mountain bikes to kids' bikes, um, it's the e-commerce platform that that um, sells all things bike to, to the broader market and so it's founded in Australia and has a very dominant position in Australia uh, but also operates in eight countries globally so operates a hub and spoke model but has a you know, very strong presence in the European market you know based in Germany uh, also in the US market uh, and also in Latin America based in in Colombia there so it's very much a global business um, and, and it's a you know, key point of difference is that it's a, it's a marketplace business model which means uh, it facilitates e-commerce transactions for all things cycling, um, though it doesn't hold inventory in doing that. It connects the consumers to the retailers in those global markets um, and tries to facilitate the transaction. And ultimately, with the you know the aim to be the destination for for all things cycling. And they've got a different revenue stream. Maybe talk us through what the difference is between their e-commerce commission, their subscription revenue, and then the media revenue they derive as well? Yeah, good question. So firstly, the core of the business was found as a classified business, you know, not too indifferent to, if you think of the real estate dot-coms of the world and the car sales. So what you, used to have, what you have is the cycling retailers around the key markets. So in Australia, 70% of the bicycle retailers pay a subscription to Bike Exchange to offer their range of products online on the Bike Exchange marketplace. So what that means is, you know, the local bike store would there'd be a direct link into their inventory system. You can see all the things they have for sale. Then you can have the option to either transact for that product online via an e-commerce transaction, or you can actually get referred to go into the store and, and see the bike or accessories you're looking to do. So. That's roughly around 50% of revenues is what we call retailer subscription revenues. And that's, you know, very sticky recurring revenue stream that, um, that scales very, very nicely. And again, uh, if you look at a marketplace business model, um, and again, you contrast it to your car sales, your real estate.coms of the world, there's a real benefit in being the first mover advantage. That's getting the number one market position, such as Australia, where you've got 70% of the retail stores have their range on, on bike exchange. Uh, and so that, that was the core of the business. So that's um, important and ongoing revenue stream. Uh, and then if we look at the equally important revenue streams, what we call the e-commerce revenues. So 
again, once you're online and you're looking for, you know, say, men's mountain bike in a you know, single suspension trek in a size medium, you can hop online, work out where it's available, do a bit of price discovery, but you can actually uh, transact online for that purchase. And so uh, Bike Exchange generates a, a commission on that e-commerce sale for, for anything that's transacted online. So that's, that's the bulk of the revenues. Uh, to your point, there is a, a third revenue stream, which is called media. Uh, and to be quite transparent, that's a sort of decreasingly relevant revenue stream for the business. And what that does is it allows people to advertise because we get a lot of traffic. So look back the calendar year 2020, uh, we had over 40 million unique consumers come onto Bike Exchange to look now for, for cycling product. Uh, so that's a big audience. And so the ability for, for brands and uh, you know, other companies to, to advertise on that platform via a you know, banner ad or wherever it may be is what generates the media revenues. But again, the business is really focused on growing that e-commerce and retailer subscription side of the business and bundling those media opportunities into those users. And so there's been some tech platform businesses, which you mentioned, um, you know, REA, car sales, where they've just enjoyed um, such incredible margins and really high return on equity and just been incredible businesses. And then there've been other businesses, um, you know, businesses like iSelect, which we had on recently, which started out um, earning really nice margins, but have since become commoditized. Is mm. it the relationship with the retailer um, and that subscription model, is, is that the IP that Bike Exchange have, which you think is going to leave them in that category of margin protection and, and having an economic moat versus some of those other platform businesses which haven't enjoyed such margin security? Yeah, again, great question. Marketplace business models are still relatively um, new to the Australian market and aren't well understood by the investor community, but it's, it's a lot of IP in building a leading marketplace position. And so there's three elements to, to building that leading market position, which is generates a, a genuine moat. So firstly is the technology platform. So it's, it's actually a very sophisticated technology platform that enables, in Bike Exchange's example, you, you've got thousands of retailers selling you know, thousands of brands and but millions of SKUs um, real time. So the ability, ability to be able to look into the inventory systems and know what bikes or accessories are available real time. And then not only that, once you can see what's available, um, the ability to transact and facilitate that transaction uh, in one click of a button is very sophisticated technology as well. So that organises the payment as well as the freight and logistics component of it. So that technology platform takes, you know, it's tens of millions of dollars to build if you're to do it yourself. Um, and so that's the first, first part. But then the, the other two important parts, and it's really difficult to build a marketplace business model because it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. You've got, again, using Bike Exchange as the example, to sign up all the retailers, you need to have the consumers on the other side wanting to buy the product and vice versa. The consumers aren't going to be there until you've uh, signed up the product. And, and so that's, it typically takes three to five years to build that market position. As I said, to get seven, using Australia as an example, 70% of the retailers using Bike Exchange. Um, there's no one else close to 10%. So we've got that clear, clear advantage that's hard to replicate and it's a genuine 
Um, you know, you've got to prove out that you've got the the eyeballs and the consumers, and you've got to prove out the thing. And that's the moat that um, that's why if you look globally and get look to the U.S. market, these marketplace business models globally, you know, trade at very high premiums and motivate uh, valuations off the back of that. So that's the moat. And you know, you speak to anyone in the industry, there's typically a three to five year time horizon for someone to launch a marketplace to get to a, a level of relative maturity. And so we've got a nice head start on, on anyone else. And the customers, you know, has it been going long enough to see how regularly customers make a purchase on there? Is it a significant lifetime value or is it a case where customers come on, they buy a bike and, and they're not seen again? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's great advocacy from the customers. And if you think about the journey if you start with, you know, you buy your first kid's bike, um, it depends, you know, start at the real base end and you're looking for a bike. And especially in the current environment, you know, a marketplace such as Bike Exchange has great utility because it's actually hard to buy a bike at the moment because there's not a lot of inventory around. Same as what you'll be hearing with cars and boats and everything else in this COVID world. So firstly, you want to buy a bike. And so this is a great tool to, work out what's available and get to the bottom instead of driving around to six bike stores in your local area and finding they've got no stock. Um, so once they start that journey, that they buy the first bike, then typically you need a helmet. Um, you know, for the, and then the you know, kid will go to, through two or three bikes over time. And what we've found is that repeat use, once they've had that positive experience online with Bike Exchange, um, there's a lot, there's a, a real journey. But spread that out over the family, you might have two kids, and then the kids get a bit older than, you know, the mum and dad grab themselves a bike and want to ride with the kids. So there's a real customer journey to be had. Flip it on the other side, the passionate cyclists, whether they're the guys on Lycra or guys and girls on Lycra or the mountain bikers, these guys are renewing their bikes almost annually and spending mm. you know, north of $10,000 plus on their bikes and, and their accessories. And then uh, selling them secondhand on bike exchange as well quite a bit. Yeah, so, so at the moment it was... Um, Secondhand sales has only been a, a relatively small portion of our of our business, but it's actually um, an initiative where we're re-engaging with and, and really lighting up again. And we talk about sort of M and A opportunities for the business. That's up one area where we're looking to to scale that side of the business up. So yes, that there is the legacy of the bike exchange business is you can buy and sell used bikes, but north of ninety percent of our transactions are for new product. But we see a real opportunity to to grow that used part of the of the platform. And talk me through the numbers. What's the current market cap, and uh, and what's the top line growth look like? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, at the moment the market cap it's bouncing around. It's around seventy million dollar market cap. Um, there's good liquidity in the stock, and I'm really pleased with um, the register that, that was built when this company listed. Got some great, well-known institutions on the register, and they've been very supportive. Um, since listing. Uh, we've also got a couple of the earlier investors. So firstly, the founders of this business, Jason Wyatt and Sam Salter, that they're still um, meaningful shareholders. There was no sell down at all by any of, of those investors um, through the IPO process and they're escrowed for a two year period. So they're very much on the journey. Uh, and then there's um, people like Jerry Ryan, who again was a big supporter of, of the bike exchange business as a private business. Um, and, and again, he's um, you know ongoing shareholder with sort of north of 20% of, of the register. So, um, so that's 
that's there. If you look at the revenues of the business, uh, now this year, and there's some broker reports out and everything, that we'll do sort of north of $5 million of revenue. Uh, though the opportunity here, and it's a genuine opportunity that we're they're working on, is how to turn that to $50 million of revenue over the next three years. And there's genuine belief um, at the board and executive team for the business to achieve that goal. And that's through organic opportunities as well as as some some M&A. But uh, now we took $20 million of growth capital at the listing and that's still largely intact. So, um, so we've got, you know, got growth capital to execute on, on that aspiration. But to your point or question around the profitability, um, as we're growing into new markets, and I'll talk about some of the growth opportunities in the new markets, such as the US and Europe, um, but the, the business operates at a sort of two to $3 million loss per annum. Um, you, know, you know, we're profitable in Australia in the more mature markets, in the newer markets. Um, so the aspiration really is to turn this into a $50 million plus revenue business over the medium term. And to do that, there's probably another 12 to 24 months of, of loss making around those rates. Um, and, you know, look, we could turn it to profitability tomorrow um, and grow at 50% per annum. Uh, and that's, that's the current run rate, the historic run rate. And we're on track to do that this year, even cycling, the, pardon the pun, but cycling the big uh, sure. COVID numbers from last year, we're still growing at 50%, which is, you know, a great organic growth rate for the business. But to get to that, you know, 100, 200, 300% growth rates per annum, where we're investing in the business. So I would suggest FY23 is more likely to be a period where um, the business can, can reach profitability. And you mentioned some of those overseas markets in the US, Europe, mm. and they've got a joint venture with Orteco in Latin America. Maybe yes. talk us through which of those um, feel like they're most important for the business going forward and maybe which ones you're most excited about. Yeah, um, so... Definitely the US and European markets are, are, are massive opportunities. So they're markets that we've been in for five years and um, the bike exchange has done that hard work. I talked about the grind of getting the critical mass of retailers and consumers and getting the tech platform integrated into all the payment systems and dealing with currency and local tax issues. All those problems are solved. And they have only got about 10% market share of the retailers in both Europe and the US. Uh, whereas, again, remember in Australia, we've got to 70%. And there's a genuine opportunity for Bike Exchange to get to that dominant market position in the US and Europe. And so uh, that means like 50% market share of the retailers. And we've got a very clear strategy uh, and we've built out a, a really strong team to go after that opportunity. So the, the big, big opportunities in, in the European and US markets, in the US, we signed a great partnership with Trek, which is the largest cycling brand in the world um, and you know, very, very large in the US and where they're their chosen partner for e-commerce in the North American market. So it's a great opportunity to springboard and accelerate that growth rate in the US. And then in Europe, there's a similar opportunity with a, a point of sale software system, either the payments and inventory system that several thousand of the retailers use in Europe. And that partnership's um, working extraordinarily well and it was already in Europe of not modest numbers we're growing at four or five hundred percent per annum off the back of those partnerships and it's dialing those two up uh, which to be fair if we look forward at the moment uh, Australia's the dominant market 
but without question, the next two to three years, that'll be quickly overtaken by the US and Europe. Um, and just finally on that, on that Latin America, like cycling's booming in Latin America at the moment for all the reasons that it is uh, around the world, but they've also, they won last year's Tour de France and it's a real, you know, literally that the market itself's growing multiple fold. Um, and so we've got a, a great partnership with a, with a local group there. We're currently in the Colombian market, which is very strong cycling market and, you know, progressing plans moving into Mexico, Mexico and Chile and, um, and expanding there. But that's probably, they're probably two or three years behind the evolution of where US and, and Europe are. Right. Well, it sounds like there's, uh, there's plenty of good news stories come over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. So uh, one I'll be watching very closely. And, and like I said before, really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us some of your time. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.